Uh, my name is Mbonisi, as you'd have heard from Michelle, and um, I've got the privilege of uh, proclaiming God's Word to you this morning. And um, I'm going to start off by uh, saying something that I hope will brighten up your week. I know that uh, a lot of us have faced some challenges this week. Um, I'm not a comedian, but, but maybe this will brighten up your week. It's a story I heard about a young, a young hustler who'd done well in the city. And having done well in the city, well, what you want to do is you want to appreciate your parents up country. And so this young hustler, he, um, his mother's birthday was coming up. And so what he did is he um, just gave some real time and attention, wanted to get some creative ideas to get his mother the best birthday present that she had ever received. And he had quite a bit of money and uh, he went online and he found the perfect gift online. This was, believe it or not, a parrot. Not just any parrot. This parrot apparently had a vocabulary of 4,000 words and could sing three different operas. So he got this parrot, he was so, this parrot was so, so excited, and he, you know, put it in a box and delivered it up country, and then the day after his mother's birthday, he called her up, and he said, did you get the present? She said, yes, I did. Thank you very much. And he said to her, how did you find it? And she said, it was delicious. <laughs> now, that's a sad story if you think about it, particularly if you love parrots. And maybe that, mother, maybe that mother would have been wise when she opened the box to say to the parrot, to ask the parrot two questions we looked at last week, which is, parrot, who are you and why are you here? Two of the most important questions we can answer at any point in our life, particularly after a week like this week, because in the words of the great theologian Mike Tyson, everyone... Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Isn't that right? Everyone knows exactly how, how to be the perfect parent until your first night at home with that newborn baby. Everyone knows how to be the perfect spouse until the honeymoon's over. And everyone knows how to do life in Kenya until the fuel prices go up. And for some of us, it's like you've been punched in the face this week. And when a boxer's going through tough times in the ring, and Paul sometimes, when we look at the words of Paul, he sometimes described the Christian life as a fight. He said, I have fought the good fight. He said things like, I don't, I don't fight like a man who's punching the air. And when you get punched, you can have a strategy. I'm going to go this way, I'm going to go that way. First, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that. But when life punches you in the face, all that goes out of the window. I remember I was uh, talking to one of my uh, mentors in the medical world. I work in the hospital a few days a week, and we were planning an operation together. And it was a complex operation. Then he gave me some words of warning as we finished discussing the operation. He said, oh yeah, we've got a really good plan, I think. And he said, but remember, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And anytime you go into battle, you can have a plan. But we also have an enemy. 
when you're in the ring, when you've taken a few knocks and you find yourself back, you know, back in your corner, it's the, the time in, in between the rounds, the coach jumps in and he talks and there are lots of things he can say. He can talk about tactics, he can talk about, you know, you've got to work on your jab and he's coming, he can talk about all those things, but I think the two most important things that you've got to have straight when you're in the thick of the battle is who are you? And why are you here? And my job last week and this week is to remind you of two things. Who are you? And no matter what you're going through this week, why are you here? Let's pray, Father God. We thank you that uh, your word answers the big questions of life. Thank you that your word shows us so clearly who you are. It so clearly shows us whose we are. God, would you remind us of things, of these things by your spirit this morning? God, would you answer deep questions this morning that, that center us, questions like, who are we? And God, by your spirit and through your word, would you help me to draw truths from your word that remind us why we're here as individuals? But God, rescue us even from our individualism this morning. God, would you remind us why we are here for the good of your people and the glory of your name? And everyone said, we're preaching through the book of Acts. And um, last week we were in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. You can turn there if you like. And um, we'd actually plan on doing something else this week. But I felt kind of like if you've ever had ribs. Has anyone here ever had pork ribs, spare ribs, goat ribs? Now, if you know how to eat ribs, you can't eat them with a knife and fork. It's not going to work. And sometimes you see people that they're at a restaurant or it's a first date or something like that, and they've got their nice knife and fork out, and they eat their ribs, and you're sitting there thinking, that's not going to work because there's all kinds of meat still left on those bones. Well, that's kind of the way I feel about this, our scripture from last week, is I think we got some good stuff out of there, but there's all kinds of meat still left on the bones of these verses. So we're going to attack them again this week. In verse 17, we started by talking about how from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus to talk to the elders of the church. And we looked at um, who we are from Paul's description of the church. And as he describes the church, he's describing us collectively, but what's true for us collectively is also true for you as an individual. And Paul does a great job of reminding us who we are, and each of the three facets he draws out are in relation to the, the God that we serve, who is one God, but the Bible describes him as being in three persons, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he describes how we have been purchased by the Father. We are his property, if you like. And that's the first thing you need to know about who you are, is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. And that changes, we said, 
everything about our lives. It changes how we make decisions. It changes how we do things. And that's important because a lot of us go through life, and some of you here have been hearing, even through social media and from friends, advice like the key to life is to follow your heart. The key to life is to be true to yourself. What job should you get? Well, be true to yourself. Should you attend Sunday church today? Well, just be true to yourself. What's your sexual preference? Be true to yourself. What gender are you? Well, be true to yourself. It's just one problem with that, and it's embedded in who we are. Remember, who are we? Well, we're not our own, but we belong to God. We are the church of God, we read about we belong to another. And that's so important in this world that tells us to be true to ourselves because the Bible teaches us so clearly that the problem is our true self. And if we look inside for the answers, I don't know about you, but I've gotten a lot of answers wrong in life by looking to myself. One golfer, he said that uh, my, my golf career has been one long obstacle course with me as the chief obstacle. I wonder if he found that to be true. Our biggest problem the Bible teaches us is ourselves. All of us have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We've all been true to ourselves because outside of Christ, outside of rescue by God, we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so what the Bible, the Bible tells us what to do with our true self, and it isn't be true to your true self. The Bible says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. The cross is a symbol of execution. It talks about someone needing to die. That's our old self. Needs to die. So Bible wisdom isn't you belong to yourself, so be true to yourself. Bible wisdom is we belong to another. So die to yourself and live for Christ. We learned that we have been purchased. We belong to another. We learned that we are precious. How do we know that? Because, well, the far, we're the Father's property. We're the church of God. But we're also precious because we were purchased by God by the blood of His own Son. And the Bible says, lastly, we're not just purchased, we're not just precious. We are potent because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit for a purpose for why we are here. 
Reading on, that's just verse 17. We're going to go through to verse 24. When they arrived, the elders of the church in Ephesus, they arrived. Paul said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach to you anything that would be helpful but have taught you publicly and from house to house, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. This morning, Paul's going to show us, in great part through his example, why are you here? Is that an incredible statement Paul makes? He says that I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Someone said Christians without goals, Christians without purpose are a little like Alice in the fairy tale Alice in Wonderland. There's a point in that story where Alice meets a cat. And there's a conversation between Alice and the Cheshire cat. Alice asked, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? The cat responds, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. Alice says, I don't much care where. And the cat responds, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Very often as Christians, we can be like that. Paul wasn't like that. He didn't say, it doesn't matter which way I go. I might go to Jerusalem. I might not. Whatever will be, will be. That wasn't how he lived his life. He said, you know what? Even if I die... My life is worth nothing to me because it has a purpose. I've been given a race to run. As long as I finish that race, that's the only thing that matters to me. He said, I've been given a task by Jesus Christ himself. As long as I can complete that task, nothing else matters to me. I'm reminded of the words of Winston Churchill, British Prime Minister during the Second World War. Second World War, all havoc is breaking loose. Hitler is advancing across Europe. At a key point in the Second World War, Germany advances into Russia, making Russia their enemies. Britain and Russia haven't trusted each other. But they both realize that the only way to defeat Hitler is to come together. And so Hitler 
and the ruler of Russia at that time, Stalin, start moving towards one another. And someone said to Churchill in private, they said to him, it must be quite a difficult decision for you, having to team up with someone like Stalin. And Hitler said, no, 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 it's not actually a very difficult decision at all. And he said this, you see, I have only one purpose. There's that word again. The destruction of Hitler. And my life is much simplified thereby. You see, someone said that what makes life dreary is absence of purpose. You find Monday to Friday dreary, well, maybe you haven't found your purpose in the marketplace. You, found, you find Sunday dreary, well, maybe you haven't found your purpose in God's body, the church. What makes life dreary is absence of purpose. What makes life complicated is multiplicity of purpose. But what makes life victorious is singleness of purpose. And friends, what the Bible presents to us, what I want to present to you this morning, is a singleness of purpose that makes life anything but dreary. Say to Paul, Paul, is your life boring? He'd have said, "Uh uh-uh, I've got a purpose. Say to Paul, Paul, is, 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 is your life complicated? He'd have said, well, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no, because all I've got to do is fulfill the one purpose, the one task I've been given by Jesus Christ. Have you found your task? Or has your task found you? commenting on what Paul said here. He's, you've, got to, you've got to catch Paul's heart. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me as long as I can finish the task that I've been given by Jesus Christ. The next slide up is from a Bible commentator called Phil Moore. He makes an insightful comment. He says, Paul did not formulate a vision for his own life and neither must we. Do you understand that? You've got to get that this morning. Because too often when we're talking to our kids, when we're talking to young people, when we're coaching ourselves, we're wandering around like, I've got to get a vision. I've got a plan. What do I want to do? What's on my heart? And the Bible says, Paul says, no, no, no. What was on my heart was the destruction of the church. Until... I was arrested by Jesus Christ himself. Paul had the fingerprints of Jesus on him from that road on the way to Damascus. That's why I wanted you to see that you have the fingerprints of God on you as the church of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God doesn't make junk. He arrested you. And if you're a believer in him, he arrested you and put faith into your heart. It's the only way it happens. Maybe you're not sure where you are on your spiritual journey. It's not a mistake that you are here. You were brought here this morning to encounter the living Christ who has wounds on his his hands because he bled for you. And today he wants to arrest you. 
and give you an assignment. Do you see what's happening here? It isn't, it isn't, it isn't Jesus and Saul. And Jesus says to him, stop. You've got to follow me. And Saul says, yes, I will follow you. And then Jesus says, that's great. Now you can go to heaven. Carry on pretty much as you were. No, no, no. When God lays a hold of us, he says, and now you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. Friends, if you want to know why Paul went through his life looking like he meant business, it's because he'd been assigned a task to do. And friends, if you were made for a purpose, we need to be serious about finding out that purpose, not from in here, but from Jesus Christ himself. Friends, life is too short to play games. This is not a dress rehearsal. We've been arrested for something so much bigger than ourselves. Paul didn't formulate a vision for his own life, and neither must we. And you can pick up three aspects of the task that, God, that Paul was given by Jesus Christ, and I think that there are three aspects common certainly to our existence as a body of believers in Nairobi but also to each one of us as individuals. Three dimensions to Paul's one task. So we're going to talk about the rest of our morning. Number one, Paul was called to reach the whole city. And he was reminding the people in Ephesus, God's called you to reach the whole city. Where do we get that? Well, you might have missed it when we read it earlier, but Paul said in Acts 20 verse 23, I have declared to both Jews and Gentiles that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Why did Paul exist to reach the whole city of Ephesus while he was there and actually to reach the whole world? And embedded in that, he said, man, I didn't just go around Ephesus preaching to Jews. I also went around Ephesus preaching to Gentiles. Why is that? Because from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, when sin came into the world, so did division between people. If you've ever wondered why Kikuyus and Luos struggle to get along. Don't look back into the 1900s. Look back into Genesis chapter 3. If you've ever wondered why genders struggle to get along, look in Genesis chapter 3 and look in the Bible. And as we pursue our purpose as a people, we've been called to break down dividing walls. And that's why our church, by the way, is called One Tribe. It's because God has called us to preach the gospel to the whole city of Nairobi. And Nairobi isn't just Kikuyus, it isn't just Luos. It isn't just Kenyans, it isn't just expatriates. 
It isn't just white people, it isn't just black people. It isn't just male, it isn't just female. It isn't just wealthy and it isn't just poor people. When Paul said, I've come to preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, he said, you see, God's got a heart for the whole city. And so our mission is to the whole city. And so as a church, we are called to reach out to the whole city. That's the lane that God has given us to run in. And we are not satisfied to say, no, it's okay. What we will do is we will have a Kikuyu church over here and we'll send all the Kikuyus and the Luos were happy. They said, keep the Kikuyus there. And then we'll have another church and we'll have that for all the single people. And all the married people were happy. The single people will stop disturbing us. And we'll have another church over here in a poor area. And the rich people said, wonderful. The poor people will stop bothering us. No, 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 no. When Jesus came and said, I've come for the whole city, he wasn't happy to say, we'll have the Jews worshiping over here, and then we'll have the Gentiles worshiping over here. The, body, the Bible says that in his body on the cross, Jesus made one new man out of the two. Jews, come over here. They said, what with the Gentiles? They came dragged, screaming and kicking. If you've read Peter's story in Acts chapter 10. And the Gentiles, Jesus said, you who are far, come over here. And they also came into the body, screaming and kicking. And Jesus said, I want to see one new man in my body. And that is why at one tribe, we bring the lures screaming and kicking and say, you will love the Kambas in the name of Jesus. And we bring the Kikuyus and say, you will love the Luos in the name of Jesus because we are one. And God, having made us one, then sends us out to the 44 tribes of Kenya and to the hundred and something nations of the world because he's called us to all people. Paul was on a mission to reach the whole city. I want you to understand that we are on a mission to reach the whole city. If you're a part of this church, you are on a mission to reach this whole city. If you're running a Doka in Ruaka, then you are our missionary to Ruaka. If you're working in the UN, then you are our missionary to the UN. Because Paul's mission is our mission, but it's all part of Jesus' mission to reach the whole city. And one of the, there's so many reasons this excites me, but one of them is captured in this quote by John Piper. It's the kind of quote that you just kind of chew over. It's so rich. He says this, checking it out. The more diverse the people groups who forsake their gods to receive the grace of the true God and follow Christ, the more visible is the superior beauty and power of Christ over all his competitors. I love 
Gottes. Ah! I, 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 I love this. Don't you understand? That Ugali is more glorious than Githeri. Did you know that? How many of you eat Githeri? How many of you eat Githeri regularly and you're not Kikuyu? Four of you. One of my bosses at the hospital, he said to me one day, I love Githeri. And I tasted Githeri. And my response was, I do not. You see, Githeri might be wonderful to the Kikuyu. But it is less wonderful, perhaps, to the other tribes. But when you talk about Ugali, how many of you eat Ugali? I grew up eating Ugali, but we didn't even call it Ugali. You see, in South Africa, it's called pup. In Zimbabwe, it's called? In Kenya, it's called? In Zambia, it's called? In Shima? But it's all one ugali. And when you put ugali on the plates of the Kenyan, and you put it on the plate of the Zimbabwean, and you put it on the plate of the Zambian, all of those nations are smiling because ugali is more glorious than githeri. Similarly, if there is a God, but he's only worthy of worship by the Jews, that's a rather average God. If there's a God and he's only worthy of worship by white people who bring the gospel to Africa, then that's an average kind of God. But if there is a God who draws worship from Jew and Gentile, or in the words of Martin Luther King, from black men and white men, Jew and Gentile, the Protestant and Catholic, rich and poor, then that God, his beauty and his splendor, when that one people worships him together, is made visible. And the world doesn't just hear it, the world doesn't just see it, the world will feel it, and the world will know it. Are you understanding what's at stake in us reaching the whole city? This is our purpose. This is why you are here, to reach the whole city. Number two, Paul was called to reach the whole city with the whole gospel. And you and I are called to reach the whole city with the whole gospel. Acts 20 verse 27, Paul says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, the whole counsel, some translations say, of God. Tima, I'm trying to help you understand why a family in Tigoni was praying for months, perhaps even years, for a church like One Tribe in Nairobi. I'm trying to help you understand 
why a family will move from Southern Africa to Kenya with a vision of a particular kind of church in mind. This wasn't dreamed up in Tigonia. It wasn't dreamed up in Zimbabwe. This was dreamed up in heaven and articulated through Scripture. What would happen if there was a church in Nairobi that was passionate about reaching the whole city and seeing different peoples worshiping together as one? What would happen if there was a church that was passionate about reaching the city, the whole city with the whole gospel? You see, some, some Christians understand the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, Jesus loved me. I've said sorry to Jesus. Now I'm going to heaven. That's the gospel message. Wrong. That is a tiny fragment of the gospel message. That's why Paul said, guys, team, remember this. I didn't hesitate to proclaim to you the whole gospel, the whole will of God, the whole counsel of God. And too often we get fixated on a fragment. This is how you get into heaven. This is how you come out of poverty. Friends, Jesus came to change everything. And his will applies to everything. I want you to understand this. We've come to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Sometimes too often we ask the wrong question when we're trying to answer, why am I here? And we, our first question is, well, what is God's will for my life? Now, I'm not going to say that that's a bad question, except that I'm going to say that that's a bad question. <laughs> because what is God's will for my life is not the first question we must ask. The first question we must ask is, what is God's whole will for everything? And then how do I fit into that? Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're starting with a jigsaw puzzle, how do you start? You start with the edges, the corners, yeah? If you pick up a random piece, which is your life, and then you look at it carefully and you say, what am I going to do with this? You're going to end up disoriented. The first thing you do maybe even before you look at the corners, come to think of it, is I look on the front of the box. What is this whole thing about? Is it a sea? Is it a sky? Is it an animal? What is it? And then after that, give me the corners and edges. And then we're going to figure out what to do with this piece. Are you understanding me? Sometimes as Christians, we come to God and we say, God, I'm a follower of you. Now, what is your will for my life? Because I'm at the center of it all, you see. And God is saying to you this morning, God is saying to one tribe, no, 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 no. I want you to see the whole picture, the whole counsel of God. You know the stuff that kept Paul up preaching until sunrise? 
You need to see all of that. And then you'll see how you fit into a tiny part of that. That's how we discover God's will for our lives. Step number one is, God, what is your will for everything? And there's a sweep of that from Genesis to Revelation. That's why we get into God's Word week after week. That's why we read the book of Acts. Not to find four steps to make you successful, but so we get a sense of this whole story. Then we can understand how we fit into it. We come to bring the whole gospel. And God's gospel, God's good news, touches and changes everything. Oh, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story about a nation that was in bondage? The leaders of this nation were corrupt. They couldn't be trusted. They had lost the plot. Can I tell you about a nation that had been discouraged for decades under poor leadership? And then into this nation, there was a new rising star who brought some hope to the political scene. And when people heard him speak, when they heard his manifesto, they thought, we've never heard anything like this. And as they watched him dealing with people, they thought, this is someone who actually cares about us, someone who actually understands me. And one day, as he was moving down the streets of a city, people started to shout out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Because you see, for too long we've been under oppression by another nation, that's the Romans. That is our biggest problem. He did a poll on the streets that day. What is problem number one? The Romans. Next person, what is problem number one? Caesar. Next person, what is problem? The Romans. But for a long time, we've been waiting for a Messiah who's going to come. And this Messiah, he's going to be like David was. Remember David? You heard the stories. The one who slayed Goliath. And this guy, born in Bethlehem, he's the son of David. And he's going to deal with our biggest problem. And they shouted Hosanna, which means, would you save us from this massive and very real immediate problem, which is Roman oppression, which is affecting every area of our lives. We're economically down. We can't worship freely. We are an embarrassment amongst the nations. Well, some of you know the story. This Messiah ended up on a cross. And everyone thought, but we thought that he had come to deal with the Romans, to deal with our corrupt Jewish leaders. And now our Jewish leaders have handed him over to the Romans, and the Romans have crucified him. This doesn't make sense. How can this be the will of God? We thought it was the will of God to rescue his people Israel. 
like he's done before. And at that point, Paul reminds us, no, 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 no. You've got to understand the whole counsel of God. You've got to understand that, yes, Jesus came to deal with your biggest problem. But what you thought was your biggest problem was only part of a much, much bigger problem. And that's why Jesus could have come and overthrown Caesar and sat on the throne. But instead he came and spread out his hands and died on a cross. Not to deal with Caesar, but to deal with sin and Satan. And because of his plan, within 30 years, the name of Jesus was famous all across the known world. And within 300 years, Roman emperors would be bowing down and worshiping the name of Jesus, the son of David. Do you see God had a bigger plan? Can I tell you a story about a nation that's been under corrupt leadership for too long? A nation where the majority of people have lived in poverty for decades. And you would think that if God cared, he would turn the economy around. You would think that if God cared for this nation, he'd take the shilling not from 100 to 150 to 1, but from 100 to 50 to 1. But friends, at this moment in time, God is doing something that's part of his bigger plan. And you and I, as individuals, church, and nation, need to be those who see God's bigger plan and then figure out how I, how you, how we fit into that bigger plan. The Bible says that God works out all things in your life, that flat tire you had last week, the argument that you had this week, the job that you didn't get but you should have got but then somebody else. God works all things, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, in conformity with the purpose of his will. I've said it before but it bears repeating. One theologian said that what that means is that when everything is going wrong, actually, everything is going right. I can see some of you don't believe me, so let me tell you one more story. There's a story about a guy called Joseph. How many of you have heard of a guy called Joseph? Joseph, well, God laid some big dreams on his heart. But things started to go very wrong. He ended up being sold by his own flesh and blood into slavery after being bitten up, beaten up and thrown into a pit. At that point, you'd have thought things can't get worse. But he ends up being sent into slavery in a foreign land 
in Egypt working for a guy called Potiphar. Whilst working for Potiphar, who he serves with his whole heart, he ends up being accused of sexual harassment. And as a result, he ends up in prison. In prison, he serves with his whole heart. And after serving with his whole heart, he, he interprets the dreams of two fellow prisoners. One of those prisoners ends up being released and working for Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land. That guy forgot about J jo Joseph, the Bible says, for two full years. And then, in the whole counsel of God, in a moment, the prison door flies open. God's bring him out of this cell. He has a shave, the Bible says, and a quick change of clothes. And all of a sudden, he finds himself standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the whole world. Pharaoh says, I've been having some crazy dreams. Joseph said to him, well, good news. I've interpreted a dream or two in my time. Joseph interprets his dream. Pharaoh says, you're going to work for me. Pharaoh gives him a golden chariot. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts gold bling around his neck. And Joseph finds himself second most powerful man in the whole world, second only to Pharaoh. And I'm sure at some point he must have wondered, how does a young Hebrew boy from the back of beyond end up the second most powerful man in the world? And the answer would have been Joseph. Step number one, get betrayed by those who are closest to you. Step number two, get thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. Step number three, be accused of terrible things even when you've done nothing wrong. Step number four, be forgotten for two full years by those who should have known better. Step number five is the step into your destiny with a shave and a change of clothes because when God says, this is my plan for you, there's nothing that can change that. And God is working everything together in the conformity of his will, of his plan for you. What does that mean, friends? That means that when things are going crazy in the nation, we are those who are looking to God and saying, God, remind us, who are we? Remind us, why are we here? What are the big things in life? And friends, we are here to worship God through thick and thin, through good days and bad days. We have an opportunity that we didn't have last week. Some of you know the story of Job, where Satan says to him, God, Job only worships you because everything is going well. You've put a hedge of protection around him. And God says very well, do your worst to him, but spare his life. And we know that full-on frontal assault comes against Job. But then there's that wonderful place in the story where Job, who's been through so much suffering, 
he says, do you know what? Even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Then you see something special happen at that moment. At that moment, Job showed that our God is so worthy. He's worthy to be worshipped even when everything is going wrong. And friends, I grew up in Zimbabwe, first 30-something years of my life. Was that a privilege? Yes. We had the privilege of worshiping Jesus through the most rapidly declining economy in history. And we had the privilege of saying, even in the worst economy in history, God is still good, and He's still worthy to be praised. And friends, no matter what happens on Monday with the demonstrations, no matter what happens on Tuesday with the shilling, we have the privilege of being those who say, if the shilling goes to 200, still I will worship Him. If all mayhem breaks out on the streets, still God is worthy. Like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Or like Paul, I consider my life worth nothing. I've got a race. I've been given a task. Number one, we're called to reach the whole city. Number two, we're told to reach God with the whole gospel, and the whole gospel encompasses God's whole plan and His victory over all things. And lastly, we're called to do this with our whole strength. I just want to encourage us to give ourselves to what God has given us with our whole strength. It's crystal clear what Paul's vision was. It's crystal clear what our task is, what our race is as one tribe church in Nairobi. We're called to reach the whole city with the whole gospel and to do that with our whole strength. That's God's will for us. And we're inviting you to take one step deeper into that today. I love what a friend of mine said in a church in Zimbabwe. During the announcements, he got up and he said, you know what? We want to be on fire Christians. And he said, you know what? It is easy to be an on fire Christian. To be an on fire Christian, all you've got to do is join an on fire church and go with the flow. And that stuck with me for some 20 plus years. Join an on-fire church that knows who we are and why we're here, and then go with the flow. Going with the flow doesn't mean going the path of the least resistance. It's going to take our whole strength, our whole God-given strength, not in our own strength, but the Bible says be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And Paul says, I've been given 
a race. I've been given a task. My life is worth nothing to me as long as I can finish that race, complete that task. It's been given to me by Jesus Christ himself. And I'm going to Jerusalem. Paul, you've been warned by the Holy Spirit himself. That hardship awaits you. You've been told that in every city that you've just visited. You're going to Jerusalem. Do you know what happened in Jerusalem? They killed Jesus in Jerusalem. You know what happened in Jerusalem? You were there when you and others killed Stephen in Jerusalem. Now you are going to Jerusalem after the Holy Spirit has warned you that hardships lie in that direction. And I think Paul would have answered, I know. But you know, you mentioned they killed Jesus, but when they killed Jesus, that didn't stop this story. Because a church of 120 and then 3,000 and then 5,000 rose up and just one of those was Stephen. And yes, we stoned Stephen to death because we didn't like this picture of the whole counsel of God that he was painting. And I was there I looked after the cloaks of those who stoned him to death. But you know what? When we put Stephen to death, the story didn't stop there. Because we put Stephen to death. But then one chapter later, (laughs) Jesus arrested me and subbed me in for Stephen. And that's now my race and my task. And if I get to Jerusalem and I get stoned to death, story's not going to stop there. Because my body's going to go into the ground. But Jesus is still alive and well and he's still building his church. And after me, there'll be another Stephen and then another Paul and then another Apollos. And one day there'll be a church called One Tribe. And the baton's going to pass to them in 2023 in the great city of Nairobi. And I've left my example. And I've pointed them to the true and better example of Jesus Christ who gave his whole strength even to death on a cross. And I'm entrusting them to God's word, the same word I followed these Decades of following Jesus. I'm entrusting them to God's Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered me from city to city. And I'm going to pass the baton to them so that they can take their place in the whole counsel of God for the good of the great city of Nairobi and regions beyond and for the glory of the one who came from heaven to earth to reach whole cities with the whole gospel. And he did it with his whole strength. Let's pray. God, we pray that by your spirit right now you would center us 
God, as we came here, wondering today about our kids, wondering about our marriage, wondering about our work, wondering about the shilling, wondering about the politics of this nation. God, by your Spirit now, would you lift our eyes? Would you lift our eyes to see you? Would you lift our eyes to see what you have been doing, your great big plan, the whole counsel of God? God, would you show us a a picture that's bigger than us? And then, God, in the context of that, would you remind us by your Spirit? Would you remind us by your Spirit of who we are? Would you remind us by your Spirit of why we are here?